This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That's me. I hope you're well. I hope, uh, I hope you're dodging COVID. I hope if COVID finally came for you that it's easy and passes quickly. Okay. Keep saying that. I think it's going to keep happening. Anyway, my guest is Tony Fidel. Many of you know as the guy who helped build the iPod and then the iPhone. Some of you also know as the guy who founded Nest, the smart home company sold to Google for $3 billion. Tony's got a new book out. It's called Build. It's part memoir, part instruction manual for people who want to do cool things like running companies. This one's all over the place because Tony Fidel is all over the place. He's got lots of opinions, so it's fun to talk to him. But I try to focus it a bit on things he learned that might help you, the listener, in your career, even if you're not going to build an iPod or a $3 billion company. I uh, should note that I talked to Tony before Apple announced it was finally going to kill off the iPod, the thing he helped build, which explains why I didn't ask him about that. Because I would ask him about that. I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably good at this. I would ask him a really obvious question. Okay. Welcome, Tony. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. It's always great talking to you, and I'm glad to be here. Thanks for coming. Um, this is a fun book. It is part instruction manual, part memoir. I'm gathering you don't need book advances or royalties to, to cover your mortgage. <laughs> so why write this book now? What's what, what are you trying to do? Well, people have been bugging me for, I don't know, 15 years to write a book, write a book, write a book, write a book. And I just didn't feel right about it. I didn't want to write a autobiography or some kind of tell-all or whatever else. And, and I was just like, when's the right time? And about three years ago, I woke up and I said, God, I'm so lucky to be here now. How did I get here? And I thought about all that. And I said, who are the people along the way? And I had mentors. I had real mentors who, for no monetary gain, decided to invest in me or my ideas or things and help me along the way. And they're different ones over a different period of time. And so I was just like, thinking about each of them, and most of them had died. And I was like, wait a second, I'm not getting any younger. So I think maybe it's time for me to be a mentor like I'm doing every day at Future Shape. Yeah, I should mention, Future Shape is your, your investment vehicle slash holding company. We call ourselves mentors with money, and we invest our money and our time with the companies we invest in. We don't have outside money. We don't have LPs, we, none of that stuff. So we're, we're very much about being on the side of the entrepreneur. So if I was being mildly cynical, I could also say this is marketing for Future Shape, for entrepreneurs who are looking for someone to work with them. Raise your hand. Say, I'm Tony. <laughs> I'm Tony. They, they probably know who you are. Um, it's an instruction manual. It's really kind of multiple instruction manuals. There's life advice for young people just starting out. There's advice for people who are running a company or who are running a product group within an organization. Right. Um, do you imagine there's multiple constituencies you're trying to address here? I took seriously the design of this product like I would any other product. Who were the audiences? And wrote a draft press release to make sure. I was like, this is going from high schoolers to retirees and everyone in between and making sure that we're addressing each of those segments because either you're older and you can remember what it was like to be younger or you're younger to see what it's going to be like when you're older so you can start to live in each person's shoes or in different time, you know, shoes in different timelines. So you can start to get a feel for what it might look like as you go through your career. Because there's stuff here. It's about you're getting out of college and this is the kind of stuff you should spend your time on in your 20s. And there's also advice about this is why you should hire in-house lawyers. Right. Right. When you get sued or right. even before you get sued. Exactly. But I wanted like CEOs or startup people to be able to entrepreneurs to read it, read about those kids coming about out of high school or college and remember what it was like and say, oh, that's what they care about. I got to make sure I tailor what we're doing to attract those people. So you can look at it as a younger person, if you're a younger person, or you can look at it as an older person, as a young person, right? And it's so built it's, a little bit like you can hop around, you can pick up a chapter, you can go back and forth. I, there's a bunch of times there where you're like, see this, and it's 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 got something underlined, like, this is really supposed to be online. This is, should yes, be a click, is. and I should go over to this Wikipedia entry. The or, ebook does. The yeah, e so that, that you'll have that? The okay. ebook is absolutely, but it was meant to be an encyclopedia of mentorship. 
It was supposed to be tiny entries with lots of things, somewhat related, you know, in, in context, but not definitely linearly told. But we worked on it for um, Dina Levinsky and I, my co-writer. Um, uh, she and I worked on it for the format for six months, and we struggled to figure out the right blend of getting just enough context to be able to tell stories, but also getting the right amount of advice and tools. So, you know, you always had these kind yeah. of balances, and it took a while to, to get it to, to sing. So I want to hop around and pick some of the advice that you Let's talk about it. and some of the memoirs, uh, some of the anecdotes you talk about. But one obvious one is the importance of storytelling. You worked directly with Steve Jobs for many years. He is the quintessential entrepreneur, storyteller, kind of obvious why that is integral to his success and Apple's success. And since Steve Jobs, there's just a whole generation, multiple generations of especially tech leaders trying to ape him, right? Appearance, onstage presentation, none of them are remotely as good as him. Um, and even if you're not trying to stand on stage and unveil your product like Steve Jobs is, you still understand the importance of storytelling. But is it something you can learn or is it just an innate skill like an actor has an innate skill and some people are good on screen and other people are not? Can you make yourself a good storyteller? You know, there's telling the story and there's creating the story, okay? Maybe not everyone can tell a good story, but a lot of people can learn how to create the story and build it. Look, a, a product story is very much like a movie. You don't wait to build the script at the end. You build the script, you build the image of what you're trying to do, really have a great vision before you go into production of that movie. It, and then you tweak it along the way as you see new, new things. That's the same thing with the product. You can be a storyteller. You can create a storytelling. I actually read Story by Robert McKee. I don't know if you know its story. But, you know, it's a really famous book for how to tell stories. This is at one time was anyone who was going to go to Hollywood and write a script, you would you would have to buy this book or see see this guy deliver a speech live. Right, exactly. And so I devoured that book when I was 25 after the general magic disaster of how to tell a story. And so you can learn that. You can absolutely learn the skill. Now, pr the production of telling it can be very different whether it's in in video form, audio form, in print, what have you. And so that's why you have all kinds of marketers to help you do that. But you can absolutely get much better at storytelling, at least understand the fundamentals so that you can ask the questions of people who might be helping you doing the storytelling to or creating the story to make sure we're pulling out those components and, and making sure it all sings and hinges together. And this is both when you actually have a thing you're selling, a product you want someone to buy, but also investors, talent, anyone, right, needs to be part. You need to be able to tell a story to them as well, why this thing is important, why they should be on board. Absolutely. You have to get people engaged and people, you know, the way we transfer knowledge in the best way is through stories. This idea of sort of creating the, the you know what the thing is going to look like, you start with that and kind of work backwards, leads me to this other anecdote you brought up about Nest, which started off as initially a smart thermostat and became a whole suite of mm -hmm. smart home smart home products. And you say, we built the packaging first. We created these boxes, and we spent all this time talking about what was going to be on the boxes, what they would look like, what they would tell the customer. Um, and that seems almost counterintuitive. Like, that would be the thing you do last once you've built the awesome right. thing. Right. And if you start with sort of the marketing end of it, like, that seems like a recipe for disaster. You're going to build, you're going to create this magical idea of a thing and not be able to deliver on it. So what is the point of creating those boxes, spending time on typefaces and art design before the thing exists? Well, first it was V1 of the company. So V1 of the company, you're, you're got to create the product, but you have to create the customer journey. The customer journey is everything from when they first learn about your or and how they learn about your company or your product the first time, how they dis, how they uh, how they get into the the details of it, how they try it, how they buy it, how they install it, configure it, what have you. You have to you have to um, mock up or understand each of those pieces so they can all sing together. Like think about a movie. They try to complete the script at the beginning of the movie before they start. So they have a full, that's the same thing. We're just creating the script. But you wouldn't start with the trailer. I mean, maybe you need to start with the trailer if you wanted to sell it to an investor or something, but you wouldn't say, imagine what the trailer for this movie is going to be like. When it's fiction, that's a different thing. 
when it's reality, when it's something that's nonfiction or something like that, you have to deliver on the promise that you're told. So, so one, there's the story, and then there's the thing you're delivering that has to deliver to what the story's setting up the expectations of. So you have to create both at the same time. Too many times what you see is people create a product, and they say, marketing, now tell the story. Yeah. And they want to tell this fabulous story, but the product doesn't deliver on it. So you have to build both, especially when it's a V1 of a company, a brand image, how you speak to the customer, how you want to project yourself, as well as what the product does and what it can deliver. I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast are in the marketing world, and I'm sure they're listening to you going, that would be great. I would love this fantasy world where, where I'm brought in from the very beginning about how this thing is going to work. But normally, they make a thing and roll it out to me and say, sell it. Yeah, well, that's, that's a typical way, and that's the wrong way. It's the wrong way of doing it. Any idea if you are that marketing person, you go, I, it's Tony Fidel, who's pretty good, says I should be, I should be here at the beginning. Oh, okay. So there's a difference, and there's a chapter on this. There's a difference between marketing and marketing communications and product marketing. Product marketing is the voice of the customer that glues everything together. They're the ones, they're looking from the customer point of view. They're the ones going, this story doesn't work. This doesn't, you know, these things don't play. So you need to have that person to highlight and accentuate what marketing needs to do and deliver. So the product marketing person, just like a product designer, just like an engineer or what have you, they're all part of that initial ideation in a way of that product to be able to, to build the story around it. So this relates to the story about the Nest screwdriver. And I, I will <laughs> confess I never bought a Nest. And it's funny, at one point I... Uh, I had a, a, a heating guy in to work on something in my boiler and said, you know, I'm thinking about getting one of these. Oh, don't do that. Oh, of course. Don't do that. I said, oh, really? Why? Oh, they're terrible. What you should do is buy a Honeywell. And, I'm like, <laughs> and then I read your book. I'm like, oh, I realize exactly why he said that. It was very funny. Um, but explain explain the story of the screwdriver. It's it's a uh, – you can you describe what it looks like. Yeah, so with Nest, one of the biggest worries that we all had was – all thermostats, more or less, were installed by professionals at the time. Professionals in quotes. Yep. And they would come in and they would put whatever's on the wall and they wouldn't teach you about it. they like, turn it up or down. Yeah. But you didn't know anything about it. They were arcane. So and it we, does involve wiring and you have to put a hole in the wall. And wiring, all kinds of things. And so it's it can be complicated because no one ever tried to make it simpler. So we were really worried about that. So along the customer journey, we made sure that we were thinking about not just the product as it was installed it, when it was in, when it after it was installed but before because we wanted to make sure that w the friction in our product for most people for uh, at least a some set of people who could install it themselves would be removed so that they didn't have to go through the guy like you were just talking about saying no you don't want to nest because they're spiffed some other way or whatever so the whole goal was to make sure they could make it easy to install Anybody could make it easy to install and make sure we have the tools inside the box so they could do that. So we custom designed a screwdriver. We didn't take any screwdriver. We custom designed a special one with a nest feel, as well as we in included custom screws. So you didn't need 10 different types of screws depending on the environment. You made one screw. And you, and you got to this. I'm going to interrupt you. B before you even got to this, you tested. You sent these things out and said, you said here, please install a nest. See how long it takes. And it took twice as long as you imagined, and then you were able to realize, oh, it's because people didn't, they were spending time looking for the screwdrivers. Well, that was one of the things. They, it, there was just so many details. But yes, the screwdriver was one of them. And I said, we need to make sure that's in the box. And everyone's like, but that's $3 or whatever it was cost. And it's $1.50, like, you said. Yeah, well, so yeah, yeah, I read their book. Well, $1.50 la later on, mm -hmm. but it was like three when the first ones cost were coming you $3, off. and that's you multiply out times what that cost for the right. product, and that's a big, part of, big chunk of your market. And they're like, everyone has a screwdriver in their thing. And I was like, no, wait a second. It's about the thoughtfulness. It's about that out-of-box experience when you go, they've thought of everything. They put it all in there, and you have that magical takeaway like, this is a different brand, right? Then I was like, when it's done, that, that tool will sit in their kitchen junk drawer or whatever it is. They'll see the Nest logo, and they'll remember that I installed that thermostat on the wall. I had a great time. I, I, was, I was able to do it when I didn't think I could, and I, I'm using Nest as a tool, you know, whenever I needed it. And I said, that is a marketing statement for us. It's a, it is a marketing expense in a way. And so each revision of the Nest that came out, people are like, kill the screwdriver, kill the screwdriver, it costs us money. I'm like, no, it's our brand. 
It's how we represent our products and what we think to the users. Why should new users not get the same great experience like today as the new users we had last year or the year before? And so it takes those kinds of decisions that are not just financially motivated to really understand what it is you're trying to telegraph to to the you could have given them. You could have said, "Hey, here's, here's your black Allen wrench, like you get from IKEA, or sure. even Peloton, which is a two thousand dollar exercise machine. They just give you a couple Allen wrenches and say, good luck.' Right, right. You could do that. Some and a lot of, as you say, a lot of companies do that. We thought about it differently. We wanted to say, "Wow, these guys really think differently." So I want to talk about how you got to the idea of Nest to begin with, because some stuff like the iPod sort of a straight line the, the product there were bad versions of iPods that existed you could there was a Walkman which was a good version but an earlier iteration you could see why people would want a better mm -hmm, version mm -hmm, of this mm -hmm. thing um, and why a consumer if you said you could have a thousand songs in your pocket they would like that um, I remember when Nest came out I thought oh this is for Apple nerds who like Tony <laughs> Fidel and buy anything that's associated with Apple what what was your insight that said people want to install their own thermostat? Okay. So Nest was born out of the frustration that I had going to our Tahoe home, and I couldn't regulate the temperature from afar. I could either waste energy when I wasn't in at the house because we were only there on the weekends. I, I could waste energy to keep it warm when I'm not there, or I had to suffer for 20, and my wife suffer for 24 hours while the house warmed up while we got there, and our first night was just bitter cold. So it, I was like, this doesn't make any sense in this day and age. How can we not have these kinds of products be better that I could dial up with a phone line or something? So I tried to hack that stuff together. It didn't happen. It, it was really hard to make work. And over a series of eight, 10 years, no one had innovated yet. The iPhone came out, no one had innovated yet. So it's like, I'm going to just Builder, build my own. And that was the whole impetus for that now. But that seems like a guy with a Tahoe house has a problem builds for, in the same way that when the first Sonos's came out. They were right. for people who were building custom homes, and normally they'd bring in an AV guy who would charge them $100,000. Oh, my God. And this was $10,000. So it made sense, but for a limited market of people. Right. And so what happened was I started saying, I could probably do one of these. I could, I could build one of these. I understand the parts and everything. Then... My wife and I, we went around the world on a, on a uh, year and a half journey, and we lived in different houses with our two young kids then. And I saw every single house, depending, no matter what continent I had, was in, and the type of house or type of apartment, they all had the same problems with the same products. No one had innovated it. There was no love around it. I was like, the world has this problem. And then when you dig deeper, no one liked their thermostats. They were controlling half of the energy spend in your house per year. And they're, you don't even know how to use them. I was like, wait a second. If you could save $700 or $1,000 a year on energy costs because it did the right thing, maybe you'll spend more on a thermostat and maybe you'll love the thermostat. And so it was all about creating a new product for a new way of thinking because consumers didn't have choice. They, got put in, they, they took what the HVAC installer gave them or recommended to them, which was usually one or two options. When you can have customer choice, that's where I wanted to go is let's show them there's a better product and get around that HVAC professional market and get the market moving in a new direction that could save energy. It looked good and it could save you a lot of money. So just to push on this a little bit, how do you backstop the idea that Tony Fidel, who has the resources to have a Tahoe house and travel around the world for right. a year and a half, has this problem? Um, that he wants to solve versus this is actually a thing that we can demonstrate a lot of people want. Your gut versus research versus, you know, there's an, we know there's a market demand versus I think there is. Okay, first, we, I think we can all agree most homes have thermostats sure. in them. So there's a lot of homes mm -hmm. around the world. So first, it wasn't a question of whether or not there was a market. There was absolutely a market. The people using it were, didn't have any voice. The customers and customers they weren't had aware no voice. that it was a thing they could buy. Right, exactly. They didn't know that. So that was one thing. And so when I started talking to people about the idea in secret that I trusted, and this is what Steve Jobs did as well, when he started talking to people, smart people who I trusted about this, and said, "This is the way I see the world. This is what I see the problems in this," and they start going, "Yes, you're right. I didn't consider it that way, but you're right." That's when I knew I was 
onto something. And that's when it became bigger and, you know, bigger. And I decided to move ahead and, and, and pull in Matt and build the company. You go at this question a bunch of different times in your book. Um, you've got a Apple Steve Jobs anecdotes, too, about he starts working on the iPhone. He's convinced that, that we should get rid of the keyboard, which if you had a smartphone at the time, you had a BlackBerry. Everyone used the keyboard. I still miss the, the I never used a BlackBerry. <laughs> um, and he says, no, no, it's a non-starter. We're absolutely not doing it. There's a bunch of design reasons, but also I just don't want it. And everyone's telling him, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. He's eventually proven right. But there's another version of – it's a different story, but um, you guys come up with the iPod. It is modestly successful, but it's limited to Mac owners, and you guys are all pushing on him, like saying, this has to be available to Windows so right. the rest of the world can use it. And he is fiercely resistant to that. turns out he was wrong. Um, what are those – and you tell those two anecdotes sort of in the same chapter. What, what are we supposed to draw from that? Because you could go either way. Well, in the case of the iPod, the iPod was a peripheral right to a computer and so we were all like sure we only had so much time to make it work on windows 2 that would have taken more time so we wanted to rush this thing out as fast as possible so it worked with the mac and you know and steve said over my dead body will it ever work with anything else well guess what the data started to come in and ipod was about getting more people into the the apple fold right but that wasn't the case. The premise was this will get people to buy Macs because they'll like the iPod. Exactly. You, you, you will have to buy a Mac because you want the iPod so bad. But then that turned the iPod into a $2,000 plus a $300 iPod, right? And that it didn't work. And we had to see the data to just go, Steve, this isn't working the way you want so it to. So your gut said this, but now there is a mountain of data saying you're wrong. Yes, right. Our gut, my gut. I even started a Skunk Works team to bring it to Windows that we didn't tell him about because we knew how much he, he hated it. He didn't want that idea. But then at some point, rational, you know, non-emotional thinking came into it. And then we're like, okay, and data-driven decision. And we're like, okay, we're going to give that a try. Whereas in... Um, and it didn't change the fundamental usage of the iPod, okay? Whereas in the iPhone, that was a fundamental usage difference at the beginning. And you had to really say what was going on. The one thing that, you know, what people don't realize is we were trying to make a tactile um, input method work for the phone. That was the iPod Plus phone. It had a screen and it had tactility on it with the click wheel. Right, We could have put maybe extra buttons or we could try different things to make input work on that. But we were always running up. And this was the other problem that we had. We had video iPods at the time that had the physical wheel and we wish we had a full screen on it. So we were working on virtual click wheels on a, on a single touch touchscreen iPod that it was a full screen that would have that. So we were already had this constrained by hardware input and another one, which was virtual input for a full-face display, and we could weigh those off each other. But in both cases, you have a charismatic, powerful, really good leader saying, right. I'm the decision-maker here. Yes. There's a bunch of people telling me I'm wrong. I'm going to ignore them, and be, and then we're going to proceed. And then in the other case, there's a bunch of people telling me I'm wrong. I'm going to ignore them, and eventually I'm going right. to acquiesce. We're gonna, right. I'm going to see the light. And is that just as simple as sometimes you get it right and you're right and sometimes you get it wrong and you just need to be proven wrong? No, because in the case of the keyboard on the iPhone, each of us didn't state our opinions. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't go one-on-one -on -one with opinion with Steve. It was his opinion over yours and he's always going to win. What you had to do is present questions and they said, here are my worries. This worry, that worry, touch input, accuracy, force feedback or any kind of feedback whatsoever, um, accuracy. It just You go down the list of all these technical details. Then there were marketing details. There were different things. So what we did over a course of weeks was work through those details to see which ones were really real and which ones were imagined or which ones could be optimized out or risk mitigated. So it was a course of probably four to six weeks where we went through each of these things to see it get better and better and better. And then we were able to make a much more confident decision because it was risk mitigated. But he still could have come out and said, whatever, you guys could have made whatever argument you, you wanted to make against it. Um, he could have said, we're going forward with it. This is the, this is, this is the iPhone. And it's there's an alternate reality where people say, I really like keyboards. I'm not buying the iPhone. Oh, right. And and so it was it was because 
the fact that the keyboard was not static when you use it. The BlackBerry keyboard was very static. Sometimes you need a keyboard, sometimes you didn't. And BlackBerry was all about text messaging. The iPhone was something totally different. Now, let me give you a counter argument to that. So we all argued with him about a plastic cover for the screen on the iPhone. Of course, it needs a plastic cover. You can't have glass on the cover. You can't have glass. And we're like, oh, my God, this is our first cell phone if it's breaking all the time. And so he acquiesced. We won that argument until after we showed it to the world. And he started showing people. And he actually had it in his pocket. And we had it in our pockets. And we started seeing some fine scratches, like we started seeing on the backs of iPods when they were stainless. But this was the face. And he goes, there's no way this is going to kill our product. This is after he demoed it on after he stage. he demoed it on stage. But before it was released, he says, we're actually, we're going with glass. We told this story in our Land of the Giants series right, as exactly. well. Right, exactly. And you guys managed to pull it off. Right. And so But that it's kind was- of a crazy thing for the CEO to go, we are changing the basic manufacturing of this thing that we've already shown. Them. And design, because yeah. the design tolerances and everything changes when you go from glass to plastic. So we we understood it. Like, we all rationalized it, and we thought that was the best decision, and Steve got on board. He didn't he's, – he's like, okay, I get it. But then when we all saw the reality of it, he decreed it, but then we all believed it as well. It wasn't just like we grinned and bared it and said, oh, we don't want to do this, but we did it. No, we all got on board and did it. So the iPhone was not a huge hit out of the gate. It was too expensive. It took it did it all the wrong of, business model. Wrong business model. It didn't make phone calls. Couldn't keep a phone call. It had all kinds of problems. Uh, the iPod was popular among people who had um, Macintoshes. Um, eventually, those things took off and became right, right. category company defining, culture defining products. There's other stuff that Apple came out with. The total flops from sure. the beginning never got better. Sure. Ping. The social network. There's a me a, mobile a, me mobile me. There's a Apple boombox speaker set up. Wi-Fi, somewhere. the cube, how, as the server, as both an Apple employee, but beyond that, how do you tell when your product is dead? No one wants it. There's nothing here. Versus, we have something here. We don't have the fit right yet, but if we keep plugging away, we can get it. Because if you keep plugging away at something that's dead, you're just wasting time and energy. So how do you? You've, you've rolled this thing out. It's not what you wanted, and you need to determine whether you should abandon it completely or keep iterating. Okay. You ha- First, you have to understand. Let me give the case of the server. In the case of the Apple server that came out the same time as the iPod, actually. So explain what the server was for So the Apple server was an Apple server. Apple decided, well, we have all the technology bits and bytes to be able to create a server so why don't we make an Apple server for all of the creative professionals out there doing video or, or graphic design or whatever, so that they could have a work, you know, a work, uh, their workstation could all talk to a central location, and back it up and everything. So Apple's like, well, we know how to make, we can make servers. That's not hard. We did that, but what we didn't understand, because there was really a Mac versus PC di- discussion at that time, we could make the product. But we couldn't sell the product because it is a very different thing to be a B2B sales company versus a B2C company. Apple was so ingrained at B2C that B2B was a second or third order thing, if anything, right? We sell to consumers, not to businesses. That's exactly. a Windows business. And, and businesses need a whole different way of how you sell, how you update, the types of software they need, the type of customer service they need, the type of installation they need, all of those things. We weren't set up for that. And we would have had to change the whole structure of the company. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a chapter all about this. You have to know who your customer is, and you can only have one. And so that was a failure, not because of a technology problem, but because we didn't have the right culture norm sales channels to get it to those people in the way that they needed it. That seems like a difficult but also simple lesson to have learned, right? Like we made a thing that we can't sell versus it, we made a thing that – the the, we made the the hi-fi speakers for the consumer. They're not buying them. Right. Do we know whether this is a thing that people fundamentally want? Sure. Um, or whether we should just abandon this? So, okay. We noticed, and the reason why the hi-fi came out was we saw that lots of people were hooking them up to their stereos and everything. We said, why use old world stereos when you can do this? Because this is the whole home theater. People would in, take their iPod and plug it into plug a Plug it in the hi-fi. 
Hi-Fi was the right product. If you look today, there's iPod, or not iPod docks, but iPhone docks, and not docks, but Bluetooth speakers that are $2,000, $3,000. It's crazy now, right? That was a victim of two things. One is it took a lot longer to bring out. The costs were too high because we over-engineered. It was kind of like the cube. Well, too well over-engineered. And by the time it hit, the feature set wasn't what it should have been. So that was just a, uh, a problem of all kinds of things coming together at the wrong time. The other thing is what Apple's realized, and you'll see this in the Apple product catalog today, was why should we be doing accessories? We have a small team, a small set of creatives and all these, these kinds of things. We need to invest in the things that are really big. Don't always have to do all those small products to also take leave those for developers to do more or less or third parties so we decided we're going to exit that market because we had other things we want to do like the iphone and that stuff because we had precious resources engineering manufacturing but you still had to spend all those resources to create the thing we did you could have brought up all those objections in advance you didn't i mean the the thing rolls out right well no but we couldn't do it in advance because we didn't know what we were getting ourselves totally into and it was it was a, it was became long because of the design, especially the mechanical and ID design, it was over designed just like the G4 cube. And, but we didn't know that at the beginning because we didn't try it the first time. It, you know, in the book, it's do, fail, learn. We had to do it to understand where we were headed. We shipped it anyways. And then we said our priorities have changed, especially because it was in light of the iPhone. So we just said, let's drop it. And then the whole universe, we, I bet you if we didn't have the iPhone, we would have been at it. And we would have refined, yeah. we would have done the next version, the next version, right? Just like the HomePod mini, right? There was the HomePod and now there's the HomePod mini and HomePod's dead. It was overdone. And they were like, oh, no, this is where the market is, and that's what we need to do. As a brief side note, the era you were in was after Steve Jobs came back, and Apple had this bloated product lineup, and he said, no, no, we're getting rid of almost all this. We're making a couple things. That's what we're doing. And now if you look, there's a whole bunch of different iPhones. There's however many different models of iPhones, and and there's different iterations of AirPods, and you just brought up the HomePod Mini. Do you think that is a mistake for them to be – regrowing this product line or do you think this is a different company a different time and what they're doing makes sense now well when we were doing what we were doing we were less than a hundred billion dollar valuation and a much smaller set of customers right this is a worldwide product with worldwide their product lines are worldwide there are so many different people who need so many different things so you're going to have a natural expansion of your product lineup of of course could it be simplified somewhat? I bet you it could be simplified a little bit. But is it really overdone like it was back in the 90s? No. I don't think it's – I think there is, you know, the, there, there's thought and care to it. And I know it's very tough to say we're going to not do this thing and we're only going to do this one. So I think they, they've refined as much as they can. They might have a little bit, but they needed that for whatever reason, you know. And so – but when you have a scope and scale of a business that big, there's so many different constituencies you have to serve. So we've been talking about your premise that you're building to solve a problem that you have or you imagine other people have. Right. And this is kind of a standard advice, I think. Uh, but you are also – you go out of your way to be critical of stuff where you don't think that works. So that's AR and VR and the metaverse. No. Metaverse is the application of AR, VR, or XR technology. I do not. I think – I fully support AR, VR, and XR as technologies. I don't support the metaverse as an application the way it has been built by some people, which is dancing in the metaverse with VR and trying to make human connection in VR. But to be clear, you're AR. critical of the idea that you are going to want to strap on glasses, period. Like you're, 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 I think your argument for AR, VR is these are industrial things. These are have specific uses. It's not a consumer mainstream product. I don't think it's a consumer mainstream platform nor product. It needs to start with solving an application or a pain point first and then it can grow up into a platform that's worthy and maybe or maybe not it's worthy of social but i don't think you can make real social connections in something where you can't look into another person's eye 
So I understand that you can't the, the, that meeting in person like we're doing now. I right. do a lot of Zoom interviews, but sure. we're, we're doing this in studio. And Zoom is great too. It's better than a phone call, right? It's, and, and well, they they all have uses, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't there a use case for a metaverse where there's some? It allows you to do things that you can't do in the physical world, or it's maybe it's it's a secondary thing. You prefer to meet in person, but you can't. Well, we could do it on Zoom or we could do it on the on the phone or whatever way. There's other ways of making connection. When you're spending 30, 40 billion dollars on something that's in search of an application, to me, when there's other needs and other things we need to do, we have scarce resources, scarce money. We have an existential crisis out there called climate crisis, okay? How are we taking all these smart brains, all this money on something that doesn't have a that doesn't is not solving a problem? We only have so much time. I say fuck the metaverse because I want people to have human connection and I want us to be investing in the things so we can maybe one day have a metaverse for human connection. But let's go focus on the things that matter. I mean, you can imagine it's easy to see why Mark Zuckerberg thinks the metaverse is both useful but also useful for Meta slash Facebook, right? It's 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 for most people it's a solution uh, in search of a problem. For Mark Zuckerberg, it's I'm dependent on Apple and Google to get my product out in the world. It really constrains me. Sure, the existing business model I have sure. has a has a, a time limit on it. I need another thing. So there's a logic to me trying to will this into existence, and you see that a lot on a smaller scale in businesses all the time. Quibi, right? Sure. Uh, no one wanted Quibi. Jeffrey Katzenberg thought there would be a market for it, and he could imagine. I see this all the time in media, sure. where where where. Um, Media companies think it'd be much better if consumers did this instead of that, but consumers don't want to do it. Right? Is it, is it is there an easy to understand rubric for you where you can go that that version, this thing, you can clearly see that this thing is not going to work because there is no actual demand for it. Versus, maybe people just need to be brought to it, and they they don't know that it exists, so you can't tell them. Like again, people didn't know there was a programmable thermostat right. available, right. and once you showed them that, they could buy it. Once you showed them that they have, reminded them that they have pain that they need to solve. Mm -hmm. General Magic was creating technology for technology's we, sake. We should explain you. what General Magic is. Okay. I think half the people who listen will know what okay. it is. General Magic was a company in born in the '90s out of the original Mac team. Um, Bill Atkinson, Andy Hertzfeld, Joanna Hoffman. This all-star cast. All-star cast without Steve that went to go and create the personal intelligent communicator, which was more or less the iPhone 15 years too early. The technology wasn't right. Society wasn't right for it. It didn't know that there was any need for this. Us geeks thought there were a need for it, but that's not where it was what was what was happening because no one had mobile email. They didn't have all these other things. So when I look at something, so, so what happened was we had the right idea. We were solving pain for ourselves, but the pain wasn't everywhere else. So isn't there, again, I'm not hugely pro-metaverse, but I can imagine an argument says, in 15 years, we're going to be there. We have to start building for it now. And by the way, we're Facebook. We have, we're a money machine. It makes sense for us to take this bet that this is a vision of the world that is going to arrive just like the iPhone arrived 15 years after General Magic failed. Well, you have to turn your vision into a real story that has real pain-killing properties. If you don't, it's all fiction and it's BS. So don't talk about it till you have it. We didn't talk about the iPhone till we had it. We had to go through two and a half iterations and lots of money to figure it out. Stop Look at Google Glass. Google Glass was exactly the same thing. Look at this amazing thing. And everyone's like, well, what do I do with it? This is the exact same thing. We're still not there yet. And when you take so much time and energy, and it's not just Facebook. Now you have all of these third-party companies, all these investors going after something that's not real, okay? And they're distracting away from the existential problems. Let's work on problems that we have, not ones that we're imagining. So this also sounds exactly like crypto to me, but there's at least for the moment we're recording this in in early May. Right. Uh, maybe things will shift dramatically, but there's an enormous interest in crypto as an investment opportunity. And whenever I meet a crypto enthusiast, a Web three enthusiast, I say, "Tell me what I can do with this, other than speculate that it will go up." Right. And I have yet to get a convincing answer. Are you? A, how do you feel about crypto? So let's go crypto. 
blockchain and NFTs. I think they're worthy technology, as long as they're done in a green fashion. They have to be done green. Proof of stake, proof of storage, proof of something, other than work. Don't right? generate the amount of electricity that Switzerland generates to, to yeah, yeah, consume, right? You, you don't want to... So, I think those technologies are right. I think the culture around a lot, some of the culture around, and not all of it, some of the more smart, you know, smart people are not getting all. But even even before we get to the it. gross part of that, because you have that with any bubble, um, what is the tech? What is the 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 thing that technology is doing that is useful for me in crypto? If it's applied right, there's only a few things that crypto is really really great for. That's unique for. And that is specifically for identity, right? So you have identity, and you can store that on the blockchain, and you know that that's I identity. own this thing. I, I own, own this thing, person. right? And you can already, many things can be replicated in databases where you have sovereign nations that have a rule of law, where there is no rule of law, or there is a dictator, and you can use these technologies to unseat that, to create a new community on it. But if you have rule of law, like people are like, I got to put all my real estate holdings on the blockchain. Well, we have rule of law. It right. There's on- a piece of paper somewhere in New York City that says that I own this little patch of land in Brooklyn. Right. Me and the bank. And would it be easier if that was electronically accessible? Sure. But it's not worth the time and effort to do that. Yeah. And maybe one day it'll migrate over. But it is it is not solving the pain because the pain was already solved. Maybe it'll be more efficient and it'll be evolutionary. Fine. But in some places where there is no rule of law, where there's not, these technologies can be used to be a foil to whatever is oppressing what's going on there. So I do believe in those technologies. And again, the, the so culture the, the, is the, the, idea, the idea that that in absence of laws and authority, that this could be a way to settle disputes or prove ownership. There's utility there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it, we don't know where it's going, but it needs to go beyond it. Again, the culture and too, too much money, too much things going on here. You know, we, we're seeing a crypto bank robbery a day, you know, kind of a thing. Um, what was that? What's that website? How is Web3 yeah, going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to love it, right? Yeah. It just shows the other side of it. So there are times when technologies are absolutely, they're neutral, right? And they can be applied for good things. When I look at the metaverse, they're solving problems with those NFT, these other technologies. When it comes to dancing in the metaverse, that's a different thing. That's an application, not a technology. I believe in XR, AR, VR, but it needs to be applied properly. We're investors in a company called Gravity Sketch. Collaborative VR with headsets, design of products. It's amazing. It's transformative. So you, are, you and someone around the world are working on an object together and manipulating it. Yes, and then you can then send it to manufacturing, and then they can see it. And you can, That is transformative. AR glasses. Ivy Ross and I tried to reboot the Google Glass program. And when I was going through all of that with her, the thing that stood out to us was, see what I see. You put on the glasses, you're doing something, and you could call in an expert and say, let's have surgery. I'm having an issue. And the expert can come and see what you're doing and say, oh, I think you should do this. I should try this. It's inc- Anybody who's actually trying to learn something or do something can call in an expert. That's incredibly powerful. That's an amazing application, right? And I, I believe in that application for these types of technologies. That's, so I want to be just really clear. I'm not against the technology. I'm, I care about the pain those technologies are solving. This idea that tech is neutral and you can use it for good things, for bad things, this is something you and I talked about in, in, in the podcast, um, the Land of the Giants podcast. Um, you created the iPhone. You helped create the iPhone, and it fundamentally transformed the world. Many ways better. And there's lots of, there's lots of uh, what do we call it? Uh, unintended consequences. Unintended consequences. What's the externalities as externalities well, right? Even, if, even well. if I'm not using an iPhone, right. I live in an iPhone world. People react, act, interact with me differently than you they would You might interact before. with the world differently because some people will have a smartphone and do digital cash yeah. or digital checkout, and other people can't because they don't have the phone. Uh, every day I ride the subway and I'm, I'm listening to someone consume something on their phone without using headphones. I'm like, this is such a petty thing, but it annoys them. Because this never happened prior. It's a very small version of it, but I'm like, it, 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 they are using it in a way that, that is disruptive to me, whether I want to participate or not. I'm wondering, I just want to sort of revisit the conversation we had about, about how you think of the, about the impact of the iPhone in particular, and if you have any regret over 
birthing this thing. I think I use the Oppenheimer Mm -hmm. atomic Mm -hmm. power Mm -hmm. uh, analogy. And whether you think about that as you're working on other stuff, it's very unlikely statistically that you're going to create another iPhone because no one ever has. Um, But do you think about what are the things that I make this thing and someone's going to use it for ill intent or not even ill intent. It's just going to reshape the world in a way that I can't foresee that it's going to be negative. And, And whether you allow yourself to think about that or you say, I can't think about that. I have to build the thing I want to build. No, I think you have a responsibility to think about the unintended consequences. And I think everyone has to understand that all of these products are, are, are should be part of a circular economy. So you can't just think about when you're designing it, I'm going to sell it, and not think about the end of life. Even in the book, we actually have end of life things in the book and show how we've created the book and what's built of it and what you do at the end. Everyone, not just if you're building a platform or digital technology, you need to think beyond that first product, beyond the the product being bought and used, but what happens at the end of life so or during life. And so you have to expand your, expand your viewpoint and, and make sure you take into those things. You might not own all of them, but you can't ignore them either if you see them. And you have to think about them and, uh, and say, maybe I can't solve them now, but maybe I can solve them later through these other things. But you need to be conscious of it regardless. Maybe you can't solve it or maybe you can't see it. You got to understand that and be able to be quick and ready to fix it if it is. Because if you are the creator or the team or the company is the creator of that, you have responsibility to fix the problems that you might create that you were unintended to create. And so when we look at social mobile companies or we look at other things, maybe they're intentionally trying to create a society that's polarized or whatever. If they are, well, then, well, that's a whole other story. But if they weren't, they need to go fix that, and they need to figure it out, and they need to work through it to, to, to get to a better place so we can all learn from it and make sure we, we, we get past that, right? And that's why screen time was added to these products, you know, the uh, yeah. iPhone products, to help with that. Now, you we still can go further. And you said, you had an essay saying, we, you know, basically Apple has a responsibility to Absolutely. sort of have labeling, essentially, the yes. same way you have nutritional information. Right. And, you know, we know that almost no one reads nutritional labels. Right. Um, they're available, um, but no one uses them. And in a lot of ways, it seems like that's mostly just sort of legal or moral ass covering, like, we put this out here. All right, that's that's we 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 put a warning on our cigarette box. Exactly. So, so I so the government doesn't come after us. Yeah. Right? It seems like if you were Apple and you really wanted to sort of restrain people's use, you would have to go much farther than that. I I don't know about restrain people's use, but give them the tools to be able to either gauge what they're doing and be able to modify modify their behavior. Or to actually allow people to like have the lock on the refrigerator so I can't, you know, open it up in the middle of the night. But people need to have those choices and they need to be at the platform level because the third parties can do whatever they want at the top level. But someone's got to watch over them, right? And then allow you to have the information to make better choices. I think you have to be an optimist to be doing what you're doing. Oh, absolutely. Um, but you can look around the world and go, oh, man, it looks like a lot of ways we're going backwards. There's a land war in Europe, and there's it looks like we're getting back to a cold war that could be a hot war, and there's existential energy uh, and, and climate issues. Yes, absolutely. Do you ever think, it's great that I'm working on these cool gadgets and, and things, but I really should be doing, I either should be doing something that's fundamentally going to change the world in a better way or 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 maybe I can't do it through through this stuff and I can do it through philanthropy and sure. volunteer work. So let's be clear. The work we do at Future Shape today is transformative. We're working on things every day to help the planet, societies, or health. Right, we're, that's we're, your answer. We, we we are trying to make the world better that, through that, our investments in our portfolio. That's it. But I want to be very clear that we get to see all these great companies and ideas, and we can only be hopeful because we see five, ten, fifteen years in the future of the technology to help us get out of these problems that we've created for ourselves. Because we're working on them every day, we see them. Most people don't see them because they're not ready yet. So if you're working in this space, you can only be hopeful because you can see the solutions are coming and you can only help to accelerate it. Now, we have horrible tragedy in Ukraine. Horrible, horrible. What was that driven by? That was driven by a crazy tyrant dictator who 
believed he has the keys to the kingdom because he's supplying the energy to everyone who needs it. So therefore, I have leverage over you. It is now exposing that dark underbelly because we're like, oh, no, we'll all just get along and we're all going to be happy. It is now causing us, actually, maybe a little late, but at least at now, the right time to go rethink our energy and how we get it, how we use it, how we consume it, and and make those changes, and we have the technologies to green, to greenify them, to get away from the climate crisis, and we have the will, because we have to get away from a dictator, a tyrant, to be able to fix these systems. So yes, the, the war is horrible, but there's a, a, a dark, but a silver lining one that says we're going to make these, it's gonna motivate us to make these transitions faster right? Because we have to for our sovereign independence. So we're not beholden to anyone who has the wrong ideas. So if you know that the technology is coming and now we have the will and we can band together like we have, and we have to get away from that old model, this is the perfect time to solve those problems because we have to solve them. Do you look at the 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 way the pendulum has swung in terms of public perception and at least media coverage of tech over the last five mm-hmm, years and go, mm-hmm. This was overdue. This was correct. We were way too optimistic and and we gave people way too much, didn't spend enough time scrutinizing big tech and the power they have. Uh, This is right or we've overdone it and people have missed out why all this stuff is great and transformative and we should be more enthusiastic. I think certain companies and certain leaders have overstepped their bounds and they're going to have to, if they can't rein themselves in, they're going to have to be reined in. And so- I think a lot of people give a lot of visionaries and a lot of people who are change makers a lot of leeway because, wow, I'm glad they made this change. They brought some special thing to us that we didn't have before. But when you abuse that power, with, with power like that comes responsibility. And we have to make sure that our leaders are responsible. And if they can't rein themselves in, we're going to have to rein them in. And so I think some people have overstepped. And I think we're going to need to pull them back if they can't if they can't self-modulate and understand what's good for society, not just what's good for, you know, ad-driven, you know, toxic. Uh, Rhymes you know. with Zuckerberg is what you're trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, did you? Um, it's early May. I think this will be out in a week. Do you, do you want Elon Musk to own Twitter? I think Twitter has been stagnating for too long. I hope there's going to be great new uses for it. I hope there's a model. I heard recently that. Twitter might go to a paid model instead a paid model instead of a click advertising model. If we can divorce revenue generation from an algorithm that promotes clickbait, I'm all for it. Okay? So if he can be benevolent in that way and do the right thing, but if it just he just opens it up and decides that Anyone can be on the platform. They can say anything they want at any time, regardless of the content of the information. It just turns into 4chan or 8chan or anything else. If people don't know those things, they should go look at that history because that's exactly on a much bigger scale that could become that if we really turn it, if we take off all the controls. I think that is the conventional wisdom is is it could go, well, who knows? I'm gonna, we'll, have a, we'll, we'll save the Twitter that... I, you know, I don't know how else we've well, seen that we've already well, we run know, the experiment. Yeah, right. We've run the experiment that 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 is there's lots of downside to that model. Uh, it's unclear whether there is a paid version that. Oh yeah, we don't use, know. Right? We don't know that. Right, we don't know that. That's 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 to be explored, and I hope we explore it because we need to get to a new place. In the meantime, you can go and buy Build by Tony Fidel. Tony, <laughs> great to have you in, in the office, not in the metaverse, not even on Zoom. Get to look at you across the desk. Great. It's been a while since we've been able to do this, so thank, thank you for coming. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Tony. Thanks again to Tony Fidel. Thanks again to Rich Greenfield and Jelani and Travis for producing and editing the show and our sponsors for bringing the show to you for free. It's still free. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week. <laughs>